Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, I would like to welcome my friend back, Joel Underwood. How you doing, Joel? How you doing, man? Good to be back. Real well. I'm um, coming off a long flight and uh, six hours of debate and big deep dive on the democratic issues. Um, since I've met you, I've started to care. I've, star- <laughs> <laughs> I've started to um, get involved, um, okay. mostly listen. And I can't say I'm less confused, as you can notice by all my papers here. I felt like I wanted to learn a little bit about each and every candidate and then the issues. But I think what your expertise tells me is how a debate actually functions and the purpose behind debating and what's good and what's bad about debating. Because these guys are all on the same team, air quotes, (laughs) and uh, they all have different semi-different opinions. And are they going at it as a, as a team effort to get the Republican out of the presidency, or are they doing it individually? What's the game plan in a Democratic debate individually? So, so let's, let's look at this one. You know, you got, again, you're back to two nights of 10 people a night, right? We're still at the, at the 20 person stage. Extra hour this time. Extra, which made a big difference. You saw everybody's speaking time come up. You see Yang still down at kind of at the bottom, just under 10 minutes, uh, I think eight and change. Obviously you see Biden way up at the top with, with something like 20 minutes. And that's mostly because if you analyze the text, the rules were that you get to respond if somebody mentions you by name. So as the front runner, people like Harris and Booker, I mean, they came after him really hard, 
But that's that's a dangerous game. That's a double-edged sword because that means he gets a lot of response time. So a lot of that that time that everybody looks like, oh, Joe Biden got to speak for 20 minutes. And well, it's because they called him out a lot. And so he, he the risk you take is he gets more speaking time um, in terms of that question. So I what a, a lot of what people have said in terms of how the CNN debates went, these these last ones this week were that people felt the moderators were being unnecessarily adversarial like they were they were saying, let's take these two people. Let's take, let's say, Warren and Delaney and pit them against each other a you lot and was ask them a lot of the. Oh, it was purposely. absolutely set up. And let's take Biden and Harris and ask them. A, let's take Buttigieg and O'Rourke and ask them the same question. And then we do a lot of split screen. They did a lot more split screen than NBC. And some of the questions were ridiculously Thunderdome. I mean, it, it almost got to the point of, uh, you know, Mayor Pete. Congressman O'Rourke is on record as saying he could kick your ass response like it, it almost got to that point. And then they split screen. Now, to you and me watching, sometimes that feels unnecessarily adversarial. And Marianne Williamson even said some things about, oh, you know, this is as we do this. Uh, these are the kinds of, of, of things that, that make the Republicans and Trump laugh. They love to see us infighting. We've all got to come together. And, uh, and Harris said something the first day. And Harris had said something like that, too. You don't want to see a food fight. Don't want to see a food fight. They want to talk about food on the table. I'll, I'll give you Don Lemon's answer. If Don Lemon from CNN, one of the moderators, were sitting right here, he would explain it thusly. And I, I don't know that he's wrong. He would say, listen, there's not a lot of difference in a lot of these candidates, in all 20 of them. They all have a lot of basically the same policy positions. They all believe in healthcare. We've got to move towards a single payer. It's just sort of how do we get there? They all believe in common sense gun restriction. They all believe in a woman's right to choose. They all believe yada, yada, yada. They all believe basically the same things. Same but core guess, values. But guess what? You as American Democratic debaters, the primaries are coming up. You're going to have to vote. You're going to have to choose. So what is my job as a journalist? My job as a journalist is to highlight for you the places they are different. So you can see where the daylight is and you can make an informed choice between all these people that on the surface kind of look like they're saying the same things. And the best and fastest way to do that, especially given the time constraints we've got, is to highlight them in opposition to one another. I am doing what I am supposed to be doing. If we buy into the idea of moderator as journalist, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and I don't know that they're necessarily wrong. These are 20 candidates that do all say a lot of the same things, and we are going to have to pick. And so we do need to see the places where a Delaney and a Warren don't agree, or a Steve Bullock and a Bernie Sanders don't see eye to eye. Those those things are going to help Americans, uh, Democratic Americans, when the the voting starts in February, make informed choices. I think it somewhat hurts the whole situation, too, because then it becomes singly single topic focused, like Medicare for all or what's the other one? Um, ACA talked a lot about climate change. Talked no, no, a lot no. about two medical medical. There's Medicare for all. There's Affordable Care Act, also known as Obama, Care Obamacare, right, right. So there's a split between you and I. We have two differences of opinion on health care. Okay. So then that that gets highlighted mm -hmm. as a soundbite or a, a separation like you were talking about between two candidates. And then somebody watching it comes up like, I, I can't go with this one because 
that splits the party in half immediately, right? right? So then we disregard all the things that Trump's doing currently, and then we're trying to pick out the person that can best challenge him for presidency, and now we start nitpicking these one or two issues that are highlighted by the debate. Do you think that's that's fair to say? Well, sure, and that's what the I mean the polling and the, the moderators reference this several times. When you poll likely voters, not all Democrats, likely voters, people who voted before and they're likely to vote in the next election, what is more important to them? Any single issue or the ability to beat Donald Trump? And overwhelmingly what Democrats were saying is the ability to beat Donald Trump. When in other words, what they're saying is, okay, we'll have this food fight. We'll figure out how everybody's different. But what the majority of Democratic voters are expecting is when it's all over and we've picked our person, whether it's Bernie, Biden, Buttigieg, Bullock, whatever, we expect everybody to form up and put your support behind the nominee and say, okay, this is our person. Let's go forward with the express purpose of taking back the White House. Whether you got your feelings hurt, whether you agree with them down the line in policy or whatever, the most important thing is once this whole nastiness, this whole food fight is over, we expect everybody to circle the wagons and and get into line. How do you think CNN did compared to NBC? Okay, first thing overarching, everybody was better. The moderators were better. The candidates were better. Every Everybody was better. And Hello. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's all right. I don't know what that's from. Everybody was better. And you expect everybody to be better because it was the second time around, right? You so so the candidates have one already under their belt. Candidates who've never done a televised debate before, now they have one under their belt. They they know how it is. They know it's a survivable event. They have a little bit more ready to go. They're back. Candidates who have done televised debate before, they're kind of back in the groove. They've got their rhythm back. Listen, when I was, was coaching debate, whether it was high school kids, whether it's, it's adults, whatever, it's just like anything else. It's like soccer. It's like basketball. It's like football. You can get out of practice and you can get out of rhythm. You know, when you haven't, when you're, I don't care how good a basketball player you are, when you haven't played in six months, your brain just isn't in basketball mode. Yeah, your shots off. Your shots off, your rhythm's off. Debate is exactly the same way. You know, some of my best debaters after the summer would, it would take them a tournament or two in the fall to to kind of get back in rhythm. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they've been out of thinking that way for a little while. It's been a while since Joe Biden's done a televised debate. There's there's a getting back into rhythm that happens. Um, The other thing is there's no substitute for having tape. Right. It's just like a quarterback. When when they sit Russell Wilson down in the quarterback room, there's no substitute for him being able to look at tape of himself and go, oh, look, see, when that linebacker crashes down, I got to take off. And tape analysis is is key. And now you could see that all the different candidates, with the exception of Eric Swalwell, who was no longer on the stage and Steve Bullock, who wasn't on the first stage, now had had time to do some tape work. And, and, you know, like Beto O'Rourke, they're like, dude, that thing you do where you keep like bending down and stop mm-hmm. doing that thing. Oh, Bernie you know? with the finger too. Bernie with the finger. And, and they had paid people like me 
to come in and say, look and see what you're, you see that language you're using right there? Oh, you see what you did there? Stop doing that. Mm-hmm. They, they had had time to do some analysis. Now, an interesting thing about tape work, and this is another thing I found out, especially with high school students, but it's true with adults too. I've worked with professional athletes and politicians and chairman of the boards and all that as a, as a speech consultant. Some people can stand to watch themselves on tape. Yeah. Some people absolutely can't. It messes them up. It gets in their head. I mean, I'm sure you've dealt with people in the show who have never heard their voice recorded before. And the first time they hear it, they freak out. They're like, oh, I sound like that? Oh, my. Most of us don't know what our voice sounds like just out in the air recorded. That that was the number one warning to me, when I start started the podcast, it was like, you have to get comfortable with your own voice and hearing your own voice. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, I had no issue. And hmm. it's it weird because I, I definitely can listen to myself on tape now. And I know that I sound completely different than what I sound like on a daily basis mm-hmm. in, my, in my own head. It's a different cadence, different talk, the whole, whole shebang. But yeah, I can see how that's paralyzing. And film too. I remember coaching soccer one time. And somebody taped my halftime speech. Mm. And I was like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where, oh, am yeah. I, where am I going with that one? <laughs> and and <laughs> it's know? true. Some debaters. It was I, helpful. And, and people who've, who've been great debaters or great speakers that I've worked with, you can some of them can look at video of themselves and go, oh, wow. Oh, that thing there. Okay. I see what I, mm, all right. I think that's good. And some people, they watch for 30 seconds and they're like, turn it off, turn it off. I can't. And you realize this is not a tool that will work with you. Right. I'm going to have to go a different way. And that's fine. Interestingly enough, the, my clients who have, who have worked the best in terms of video have been athletes because they're used to going into the film and having, you know, no excuse. Oh, see, I, I bit on the corner route and then he ran right past me. I mean, you're used to seeing yourself up there and making mistakes. And so in, in debate and speech and, and color situations, they're cool with it in a way that some politicians and some, you know, chairmen of the board and people I've worked with are not. Yeah. I feel the same way about going to the doctor. You know, I do blood mapping every 90 days, just kind of checking out, you know, how the oil's running. And in my mind, it's useful information. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing I'm scared of or, or shy away from. I want to have that there information and tapes the same thing. Same thing. And and by the way, everybody did better also extends to the moderators. The moderators did better this time too. Now, granted, they had an extra hour to work with, but they were also, some people have used the word meaner. They cut them off more. They didn't put up with as much crap. And did you see there was a key when they were, when they were explaining the rules, there was a key difference between the CNN and the NBC. They said, and if you do interrupt each other, that time will be subtracted from your overall time. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you jump in and you talk over Elizabeth Warren, we're going to take it away from you somewhere else. And the other thing they did right off the bat on the first night that I think was very effective is if you tried to jump in, if you tried to, I'd like to be heard on this. Excuse me. I'd like to speak on this. They didn't honor that. And what that sends the message and what you figure out if you're a candidate, especially for the second night, but even in the first night, is if I sit there yowling out that I'd like to be heard, A, I'm never going to get called on, and B, I'm going to sound weak and lame sitting there just going, I'd like to be heard, I'd like to be, and you never get that way. Yeah, that kind of happened to de Blasio a bit. Happened to de Blasio, happened to Elizabeth Warren a couple of times. Um, You saw Pete over there to the side sometimes just sort of raising his hand, waiting Mm -hmm. to get called on. Our own governor, uh, a little bit of that. Same with Bennett. 
They yeah, did but, a good but job. they stopped really quickly doing. I want to. I want to. I want. Which is what you saw the first finger up time a lot. and then yeah. put it back down. Yeah, yeah. So I think everybody did better. Everybody was better. Narrator, uh, moderators, everybody. A couple questions come to mind. Um, everybody has a different opinion. Like we can watch the same thing and get two entirely different objective opinions about it. Absolutely. Why is it so hard for us? come together and talk politics i mean uh, i i get shunned like, hey let's just not talk about politics right mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. like they're you're upsetting the apple cart and i feel like as i get older it's more and more important to have logical conversation and address some of these issues that are going on in the world and you know take your input and not be defensive about it mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of tough like I feel that you thought the moderators were really good. Mm-hmm. But then I read a bunch of articles that the moderators were really poor. Uh, ben Shapiro really went after Don Lemon, mm. saying he yeah. was extremely left-sided. Well, he's and, also never a fan of Don Lemon right, anyway. Right, right. Like, Don Lemon could save a little old lady from falling out of a helicopter, and he'd go, you know, what was Don Lemon doing in that neighborhood anyway? Yeah, so he was accused by a, a few pundits that you know he was not unbiased he was very biased to the left in a certain way and then tapper when bernie was talking about hey you're gonna advertise right after the very next commercial break you know you're you're kind of a sellout and tapper cut him off and was just like very adamant about it and like bernie had a point in my mind sure 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 so it's tough to say that everybody's unbiased or equal chances just by the the luck of the draw, the all white panel the first night, uh, Biden in the middle, Warren and Bernie in the middle, and then it goes out, outside, inside, outside in, inside out mm-hmm. as they spoke. And then you can see it by the, by the amount of time each candidate has to talk. Biden, Bernie, Warren, you know, they all got extra time because the questions set up for rebuttals and included more people. So that gave those front runners. Time to talk more. Well, and again, because they were the front runners, people called them, the other candidates called them by name more. And by the rules of the debate, if somebody mentioned you, yeah. you get to respond. So on that first night, who's the leading poll person in the room? It's Elizabeth Warren. So they're going to go after Elizabeth Warren. But what that means is she gets more time to talk because she gets to respond. And look, the other thing that overlays all of this, the, the umbrella over the top, that CNN knew going in. Of all the candidates, of all 20 candidates, five, five of them in the last financial quarter brought in more money to their campaign than they spent. Five. And that's Bernie, Biden, Warren, Harris, and Buttigieg. The rest of them are in the red. Most campaigns don't stop because people suddenly decide, you know what? I think I'm never going to be president. I'm going back to Virginia. I've been so wrong. No, they stop because they run out of money. You can't pay your people. You can't put gas in the plane to get you from place to place to place. CNN knew very well only five of the, of the 20 people we're dealing with right now have the money to keep going much longer. Right. So as a result, obviously, they're going to gear a great deal of this towards them. Um, and in fact, if you look today, only eight of the 20, as of today, mm-hmm. have qualified for the next debate in Houston, Texas in September. Biden, and Booker, Buttigieg, Harris, Amy, 
I always have a hard time saying Klobuchar. Klobuchar. Yeah. I want to say Chuck Nallblock all nah, the time. Klobuchar. <laughs> Klobuchar. Beto O'Rourke. Uh-huh. Um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. But is that a product of the DNC saying with these new rules that you need 130,000 right, unique this time. donors? And spread out over 40 states this time as opposed to 20 for last time. So I heard that, you know, now we're pandering to, can you just... Give me a dollar to keep sure. going, right? All right, right. A little bit of that. So I heard the economics behind that to ask, it costs a candidate $70 to get that $1 mm. from a unique donor. Right. So that draws and depletes the funding for that candidate immensely. Sure. And but that that one, again, the way the, the democratic rules are set up, you, you don't it's wrong to say you don't care about that one dollar donor. You you need it for the for the participation numbers. But where you're getting your money is when somebody like a Pete Buttigieg, who was just here, you know, comes and what what do all these candidates do when they come to Seattle? They do a, a meeting in a warehouse somewhere. They do a big uh, thing. At, I think Pete was at the Showbox, something like that. Then where do they go? They head across the 520 or across the I-90 hey, over Bill. to Kirkland, and they do a big thing at somebody's house that's fifteen hundred dollars. Just to walk in the door, thirty thousand more if you want a picture. All this. In fact, that is why our area, the Pacific Northwest, uh, uh, some people uh, um, derogatorily refer to it as the the Democrats' ATM. They come here and they they fundraise and they want money. They don't necessarily care about our issues and climate change, sea level rise. They just come here. They have big fundraisers at wealthy tech people's houses and then they leave. Well, that happens a lot. That's the the donors they need. There's two PNW issues, and and one's you know the ocean and the climate, and and the other's Amazon. Right. Know. What are you going to do about this? This and and I would argue that the Amazon issue is what do you do about unmeasured corporate growth? At some point, if if you get a corporation, even if it's a good idea, even if it's great, it's a very un-American thing to restrict growth. And it's a hard thing to do. Um, you know, it's, I, I sometimes refer to it as the chemotherapy problem. It's very difficult corporately to shrink something without killing it. And, and it's how do you put limits? You know, Andrew Yang's talking about, well, value-added tax. If we just make sure that every American gets a piece of every Amazon transaction, a piece of every robot, uh, uh, semi-truck-driven mile, a piece of – okay, yeah, that is a lot of money. What, was, what would that look like? How would you do that? D- let's translate that. That means that everything on Amazon gets a little more expensive because they're not just going to eat that. They're going to keep their profit line. Uh, it's the same thing with, with Trump's tariffs now. If you make it more expensive for these companies to do their business, they will pass that expense on to the consumer. And so everybody thinks, should I get a piece of Amazon's transaction? Heck, yes, I should. But then when you ask them, are you ready for everything on Amazon to get more expensive? Well, no, but that's the same question. Well, maybe things should cost more. And well, that's the it's the old Walmart argument, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants uh, uh, better things Best for the environment. They want uh, uh, they they want things to to not come as, uh, as far. They want it to cost less gas to get to their shelves. But when you ask them, are you ready for everything on a Walmart shelf to go up by ten to fifteen percent in price? They go, no. It's the same question because mm-hmm. they're not again. They're not going to eat that that profit loss. But, they're going to pass well, we it on to, to you. Break those cycles at some point, just like the minimum wage. Sure. We have to break them. And just like Bernie was saying about these radical ideas, you know, at a certain point, it's it's no longer radical and it makes sense. And we, we should change for the better. 
Hey, well, it's been a while since the debate, and it's nice because I got to let it settle in. I was in New York. You're building your new uh, restaurant in Olympia, yeah. which is awesome. I'm happy for you. I'm going to definitely check it out when I get out that way. Mm, cool. There was two new guys in the in the first night, Steve Bullock. He's 53 years old, Montana governor, and he's progressive. Um, Tim Ryan, my namesake, uh, moderate. Ohio representative, 45. He was one of the youngest guys to get elected. Well, he was also in the first one, too. Tim he was? was? Yeah, he was. He, he kind of was. Now, he had obviously, he was one of those people who had obviously gotten some coaching. Because you look at him in the first debate, and he's got those, those kind of crazy deer-in-the-headlights eyes looking around, feeling like, you know, and, and really on the attack. Uh, second debate, he had toned it down a great deal. And they had obviously decided they were going to pit him against Bernie a lot. Uh, he was had the great line, no need to yell. Yeah, I love right. that. Line. No need to yell, man. It's it's all right. Um, he, yeah, I'm right here. No need to no, yell. No need to yell. Um, he had obviously taken some coaching of dude, tone it down, tone it down, and ended up coming across again. Everybody was better, but coming across as much more measured. He's a giant man. He's a tall guy. A lot of the guys, Beto's tall. Yeah. De Blasio's tall. There's a Jay Inslee, our own governor, not a short guy. I mean, there's some there's some big tall guys out there. Yeah. So, give me a little history about Tim Ryan. W- wasn't he? In politics, about eight years ago, when when he started, uh, very young, mid thirties, um, made some great, great strides. What got him to this prominent point? Well, any so any Democrat from certain key states is going to get a, already has a leg up on the competition because what did again? I I know the last time we sat at these microphones, we talked about our where are the voters that voted for Obama. And then turned around last election and voted for Trump. Those are, those are the ones you have to get back. So any senator from uh, or, or former governor of or something like that from Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan. Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, in Pete's case, Indiana, uh, they're going to get a second look because that's the voters you need to get back. And that that does mean that there are certain candidates that in other years might not necessarily get a second look because of the crowded field, simply because of the voters and and the the coalitions that they can maybe bring to the table are going to get a serious look here. If, if Tim Ryan was the senator from Oregon, no one would care. But Ohio, I mean, as a, it's hard to think of with the possible exception of Florida. It's hard to think of a, a more important state that can go either way that has has been in so many ways the bellwether of of presidential elections so and so yes his his very origin makes him a key person in, in the same way that somebody like uh an amy klobuchar again not somebody who in a different year with with different things at stake might might be somebody that people would be looking hard at but just where she's from now what that does assume is that you then have a leg up on bringing those people to the table. And is, is there probably there's, there's no more uh, a cogent example of that than O'Rourke and Castro. I mean, if you can actually put Texas and Beto talked about this in the debate, if you can actually put Texas in play, that changes everything. Mm-hmm. All the math goes out the window. Now, Castro and Beto both have yet to prove that they can put Texas in play. What what Beto is most famous for is losing an election in his home state where he couldn't unseat one of the most hated senators in, in the entire field. But 
if you could put Texas in play, just that makes them automatically somebody to keep your eye on. There's, there's so many things like that that I feel can really bite a candidate in their ass later. And we were talking about earlier, you know, Trump can make 100 mistakes, but right now it's critical time for Democrats. So Elizabeth Warren being a Native American, you know, does that blow up down the road? Beto O'Rourke not even winning in his own state blow up down the road. Um, it, it's tough, man. You And Castro, too, like decriminalizing uh, Crossing the, border. the borders. And I see his point, but basically it's going to come down to one side wants the wall, one side says free pass, everybody in. That's going to be the simplistic message that people are going to take away from it, which is not correct. It's not correct at all. So he's got this huge hill to climb to educate people by what he means in making it a civil violation to cross the border as opposed to exactly. detaining camps and a separation of families and saying, hey, I'm still for the wall in certain parts. I'm still for border control. I'm still for supplying the money for the the manpower the drones the planes the continuation of that wall but let's look past that and say you know why are these people taking a 2000 mile trek in the first place and let's start trying to fix those problems as opposed to putting up a wall and detaining people and, and stuff like that and then decriminalizing it and making it a pathway towards lawful immigration and citizenship well, and and Beto uh, actually alluded to this. The the rhetoric teacher in, inside me just got all all warm and fuzzy when he said, uh, "We're being given a false choice." One of the primary yeah. logistical fallacies. And, and by the way, it's it's one of the ones that not just Trump but the Republicans in general for the last oh fifty years or so have been very good at is creating the idea of the false choice. It's either all or the other. It is uh, all the current status quo healthcare system or it's socialized medicine and the same healthcare service that you get at the DMV when you go to get your driver's license. It is either uh, uh, basically leaving separating kids from their families at at the borders and putting kids in cages like we don't want to do but we're doing or totally open borders with mm-hmm. you know the the worst of the, the cartels basically coming and knocking on your door well, it's all one or it's all the other and and the difficulty with the false choice with the the false choice narrative in in any kind of debate is that it is so the 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 counterbalance to it is so difficult which is education i mean look at andrew yang his policies are in 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 many ways, there's some really cool things there, but there's a complexity that he has to educate before he can persuade. Right. And so the question that you have to ask yourself as a speaker or a candidate is, okay, how much time do I want to spend trying to teach people about the U.S. economy before I start saying my cool catchphrases? Because you and I – listen, you and I are sitting here spending an hour and change – talking about the second democratic debates here's the the hard truth the vast majority of americans didn't watch them they didn't watch them and so as a result 
what do they hear? They hear the sound bite. They hear the line. Right. They hear, uh, uh, you know, that, that great Elizabeth Warren line from the first night. I don't understand why so many people run for president to tell us all the things that we shouldn't do and we can't do. Uh, that was uh, Delaney, right? Or, yeah. And then uh, uh, was everybody remembers the Cory Booker when you're, you're dipping in the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. See, that's a shirt right there. Th- but here's the instant. Go back and ask anybody who thinks that line was cool. What preceded it and what came after it? What was he talking about? About what issue was it about when he said yeah, it? Good they point. don't know because they didn't watch. So the question you have as a speaker is, okay, how much do I want to try to explain healthcare to people versus how much do I want to sort of give them a soundbite? That's one of the things that Yang has going for him. He's got a really easy soundbite, $1,000 a month for everybody. Grab the bag. Grab the a thousand bucks a month. An Asian man who likes math. That was his, his yeah. introduction. People loved it. You know, boom, boom, boom. Those are, those are the things because it's really hard to defeat the narrative of false choice without going deeper into education and saying, wait a minute, multiple things can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, we, we can have our, our, and this is one of the things where I think Democrats get it wrong. Our immigration system can be a mess right now. And we do need to, to re to look at reforming it and make it worse. And what's going on at the border can be awful at the same time. And we shouldn't separate kids from our families. Both those things can be true. It, it it's wasn't not an set up or. for the current situation. Right. Exactly. It can get overwhelmed. I think the, that's that's true of so many of our things. You know, it's it's an interesting uh, uh, situation. I, I uh, taught world religions for uh, several years. And uh, one of the things when, when you talk about Al-Qaeda and, and what happened in, in the Middle East, uh, I, I have a real uh, – uh, sort of philosophical position that what Osama bin Laden is primarily going to go down in history as is a thief, not a murderer. He stole, I will, I will argue this to my grave. He stole the first decade of the 21st century from us. He stole, and, and by the way, it's interesting because in, in, in Islam, one of the worst things you can be is a thief. Some of the worst punishments are reserved for thieves, which if you can think of how their society was set up, that makes perfect sense. But the time we spent, the money we spent, the resources we spent at the beginning of the 21st century chasing this guy around the desert, and then you look at so many of our social institutions, our schools, our infrastructure, our medical system, our immigration system, are they broken? Not really. Are they messed up? Not really. They're just about 10 to 15 years behind. They didn't keep pace with population. Mm-hmm. Our school system isn't that messed up. It just it just is being overwhelmed. Our medical system is being overwhelmed. Our immigration system is being overwhelmed. We put all these resources into war and defense for the first decade and a half of of the 21st century and all our our roads and our bridges that are crumbling we're just we're behind. Yeah, we're using fish and wildlife officers to patrol yeah. the border right now and they they have no skill set for that it, yeah or, or, i mean look at look at uh how many schools we really need to build to keep up with population we haven't done it look at, at how we need to have updated how we keep medical records no oh, shout out to lebron james his school ideas is working which is awesome except we are depending on private people and right. private wealthy folks to come in and do what our government ought to be doing Mm-hmm. And and so I, I think that that so many of our systems, they're just they're just overwhelmed. They're just behind. And so to bring it back to somebody like Bernie, what he's really talking about is 
a massive change, a massive reinvestment to in some ways not fix things, but just bring us back up to speed to where our institutions are keeping track of our population. You know, Pete uh, uh, had a, a chilling point when he said we are currently uh, probably days, if not months, away from hearing about the first casualty from Afghanistan, the first soldier, who was not born when 9-11 happened. Mm. That should give us all pause. I mean, I have two daughters. I have an 18-year-old an and, and a 13-year-old. We have been in Afghanistan for the entirety of my children's lives. Right. I mean, that's, that should give us all pause. Yeah, and, and Tulsi Gabbard talked about it, and so, so did a few other candidates. It's, we can't just immediately just pull everybody out and save all that money from the defense. Um, there's a lot still going on there, but we are constantly – in these other other wars around the world that we don't seem to have an exit strategy. And it seems like every president is attached to a certain, you know, Iraq, Iraq or Afghanistan type war, every presidency. And it's like, at what point, you know, do we reestablish the, these agreements that Iraq, Iran, nuclear, the Paris uh, agreement, those things and start saying, Hey, well, the nuclear stuff, it just goes on and on and on. It's like, where's the solution? Why do we continue to build this massive military and continue to participate all over the world? And yet now, are we in the UN or not? <laughs> you know, like we have to make these change. And Bernie was talking about radical change. And then I think Biden had a good point against Harris saying that, okay, you have a 10-year plan. That means it'll start once you're out of the presidency. You know, how's that really going to be viable? How's that really going to work? Right. Well, Inslee said much the same thing to Biden about climate change. Yeah. We don't have the time to ramp up like you want to ramp up. He had another great line, too. Your argument's a, not with me. It's with science. He had a really good. I mean, again, if you look at now, he's probably not going to qualify for the third debate. You never know. But but it's looking yeah, like he's he probably, not on the radar. He, right now. he probably won't. But if you look at what he wanted to do, which was make sure that climate change is front and center and is at least getting you know as much time as as some of the other issues. You can't argue that he's done that. He he's absolutely put it in the top has five issues for sure. He absolutely has. And uh, uh, the other thing is he he has come across um, as a, a, a not only a powerful orator but somebody who is willing to say the tough things. Is willing to say that you know Donald Trump is and from that first debate. You know the most mm -hmm. existential threat. Uh, the idea that we have a president who uh, the, what is it? He the second debate we have a white supremacist in office, and we need to call it that. I mean he he does have and granted he does have some of the advantage of knowing that eventually as he's not going to be the guy he can kind of say anything he wants to. And he said also uh, sorry to interrupt, sure, no, but sure. he said. You know, I've, I've won 21 lawsuits against Trump. Yeah. You know, it, it can be done. I'm showing you it can be done, whether it's him or somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And no. shout out to whoever dressed him, too. He was looking sharp as He's sharp a sharp dude. And, and I, no, I think that, that what he wanted to do, and again, winning looks like different things to different people. We talked about that last time. You can't debate that that he has by by any measure you want run a successful uh, a few months of a campaign. Yeah, very on point, very stoic. Um, 
Very proud of him. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the neighbor. Should feel good. So you mentioned qualifying for the second debate. As it stands, or as we sit here now in yeah, <laughs> Studio right. 15, um, who's close? Um, Yang, Castro, and Tom Steyer, who has not even been in the debates yet. He, um, Well, Castro and Yang have three of four polls um, done and ready. Right. You got to get, and, well, but in Yang, they just, he, ha, he, he had, had four, it, he took it away. And then the supposedly, because both of them were NBC based polls, he just lost one, which he's not happy. And about. then, um, Gabbard and Hickenlooper have two out of four. I was surprised that John had, had, was polling that well. Y- you know, y- you never know. It's it, again, it feels like it's a, it's a really high bar and it's just because it's doubled from the last bar. Uh, one to two percent, and and uh, uh, one hundred thirty thousand from sixty five, but that's still it's it's still a doable bar. Um, I, very frankly, I'll be surprised if Hickenlooper gets in. But the the thing that you're watching is almost as a as a watcher of these, you almost don't know what to root for because if they get ten or less, it's ABC this time, and they're going to do it at at uh, Southern Methodist in Houston, Texas. Um, if they get ten or less, it goes down to one night. And then, but I don't know if ABC, see, now you're going back to another network like NBC. You're not going to a cable news network like CNN. They may cut down to two hours. They may stay at three. I, I, you almost want 12 people to get in. So maybe you could do two nights of six and everybody gets to talk a little bit yeah. more. It, it just depends. There's a sweet spot in there because if you get one, if let, let's say 10 people qualify and ABC just does one night of 10. You haven't really gained anything. That's going to be a crappy night. Yeah, they're going to push through because they want the ratings and the money and all that. I'd I'd almost like to get them to 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 a point where there's thirteen or fourteen, and you have to split it into two manageable manageable nights. Well, there's a possibility of nineteen right now, yeah. um, if everything works out, and that leaves a few people out. And before I get into who's being left out, um. I want to talk about Steve Bullock a bit, the Montana governor. Yeah. Um, he had some issues about, you know, money and politics, mm-hmm. the Affordable Care Act. He was very much a climate champion. He won free pre-K and mm-hmm. um, public education to improve. He definitely had a lot of um, comments about foreign policy and the defense. Um, he was strong on immigration and labor rights. Uh, infrastructure and affordable housing. And he got some solid talk moments in. Can you elaborate on what person, what type of person he is and what, what is good and what kind of is, so red what's state, his idea? Red state governor, yeah. Montana, right? And so a winner too. If, if Steve Bullock, if I'm, Steve Bullock is is the person who's sitting there thinking I should run because I can, like we were talking about, Minnesota, uh, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I can get back some of those on the fence voters, some of those people who maybe voted for Obama the first time, then turned around and, and voted for Trump. Those people who are tired of kind of Washington inside the beltway business as usual, people who use bigger words than I want, people who don't seem like they are connected to my day-to-day values. Again, Montana, highly agrarian state, you know, so much uh, uh, farm work. He had one great stat. I can't remember. If we, what was it? He said, if we ate all the wheat we produced in the state of Montana, like yeah. every citizen would have to eat 33 loaves of bread a day. Something like that when he was talking about the tariffs, 
Yeah. Right. And and so that's that's a great point. That's too. who he's trying to talk How to. How many is the people, people we could feed? Too. The people who you who are being really smacked in the face and held down by these Trump tariffs, uh, and again trying to really appeal to those center of the road voters. Because again, remember, Trump's always got his base. Right. He's got somewhere from thirty to forty percent of the country that he could. Uh, just do the the worst and most horrible thing you can imagine and kind of has, and they are never going to desert him. They are always going to come out and vote him. He doesn't have to do anything. They are, they are his base. They are always going to come out. You've got another probably about 30% to somewhere to 40% of the country that hate him, hate him and are going to come out on election day in droves and vote him down. Why is that? Various, either because of of policy reasons, because of personal reasons, because of something he said or done. So the question is, and what a Steve Bullock, what I'm a guy who I'm surprised hasn't jumped into the race yet, a John Kasich from Ohio, what they're selling is I can get those folks in the middle. Mm-hmm. I I can get that that thirty percent that's left in the middle that either voted for Trump last time, enough of them did, or stayed home which is just as powerful. I can get those people up off the couch because they think I know their struggle. They think I know who they are. The person who can get those people up off the couch, because one of the things that overlays all this that we always have to keep in mind, last election, more people didn't vote than voted for either Hillary right. or Trump. So the people who can, who can, somebody who can get those folks up off the couch, that's, that's the person who's, who's going to do it. And, and what some of these Democrats are saying is I can get that person up off the couch. That's where a Steve Bullock is, is going to get his. Now, I strongly doubt he can raise the donor base to get into the next one, but that's, that's the kind of person that, that is trying to get those centrist voters either to switch from, from a Trump vote last time or to get up off the couch and actually vote, which they didn't last time. Yeah. He, he didn't come off as a, a guy that I, you know, overly would like just his demeanor and, and how, how strong he came out. If he missed the first debate and was only in the second one, he needed to have a moment. And I thought he was very strong and did have moments and articulated his arguments very well about infrastructure, uh, agriculture, a, a few issues like that. He doesn't look like he has a chance to come in for for a, a second time. Be very difficult to debate. So, what is his purpose? What makes him think he needs to do this? Is this just to get conversation points out to toot his own horn about Montana, or is he bucking for a different job? Look, two two names I'll, I'll throw at you. Number one is Donald Trump, and the other one is Bill Clinton. I mean, Clinton didn't even the year he won didn't even enter the race until October. Now, presidential elections are very different now than they were then. That yeah. was before social media. That was before a lot of 24-hour cable. <laughs> I was listening but, to the Lincoln debate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> much little, different. It's very different. But here's the thing. Trump especially has blown the doors off the idea that pundits can predict things and that, that anybody – I yeah. mean, how often was Trump declared DOA? Yeah. During the report, he, he they kept saying, "No, people will come back to to Jeb Bush. No, people will come. No, Marco Rubio is the new voice of the Republican Ted Party." Cruz. And what yeah. happened? He just kept hanging in. And what that does is that gives somebody like a Bill De Blasio, right? Like a Steve Bullock, somebody. It gives them a, a blueprint and hope, and they go, "Look, you can't tell me I can't because look what happened." 
If that can happen for him, why can't it happen for me? I'm more qualified. I have a better machine. I'm, I'm more morally upstanding. If it happened for him, why can't it happen for me? And there's, there's a history of long shots out there. So that you think that's what he was thinking? I think that can be part of it. Sure, absolutely. You, you Now, again, like I said, most people who start running for president then stop. They don't stop because they suddenly realize they've been so wrong or, oh, wait, my hubris is exposed. No, they run out of money. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you cannot pay your people. I mean, th- most people don't realize this. The mechanics, just the mechanics and the money involved in getting your name on the ballot in all 50 states is massive. It, it requires a, an incredible machine of lawyers and volunteers and, and people filing things and getting paid. And, and you pay those people. And, and so, you know, gas and food and all those sorts of things. I mean, there's a reason that the incumbency rate in Congress is over 90 percent. It's because the money that you have to raise is so hard to raise as a non-incumbent. You know, there's a horrible stat that from the time you get elected to Congress, if you want to run again, Next election, you have to start raising from the day you take office $10,000 a week. Yeah, and Trump did a really good job of that. He's a, he's a great money raiser. But uh, I mean, that's, that's what happens to most presidential campaigns is they simply run out of money. And then, by the way, remember, nobody quits. They suspend their campaign. That means if somebody gets caught in a horrible you know, picture in a hotel room with a hooker and a bag of cocaine, I reserve the right to jump back in. You know, you don't quit. But but most candidates run out of money. DC and it, mayor, right? Hey, <laughs> Marion Barry. Um, back in. And that's the thing. 15 out of the 20 of these candidates are running out of money. 15 out of the 20 are in the red. So that's that's something that that may make a lot of the decisions for us. Marianne Williamson, you know, has a lot to say. And, and she was the most Googled person over the night yeah. of the two debates. That's all great. If you're running out of money, it doesn't really matter. Much. I want to get back to her because she kind of blew my mind. But I want to digress a little bit to you said something about getting on the ballot of all 50 states is my understanding that Washingtonians votes almost don't matter. And why does it start with these little states in the East Coast? And then by the time it comes to Washington, it seems like the race is already projected. And that had a lot to do with people not voting, I think, last time, that it, the race was called prematurely. There, there is, and, and there's a, a, an opinion out there, a, a body of thought that really what you ought to do is basically divided up into thirds, all 50 states up into thirds, and do three Super Tuesdays. And basically do a 30-year states one week, 30-year states the next week, and a 30-year state. Because, yes, a little state like Iowa or New Hampshire right now has a huge impact on, on the race. And, and they have put themselves specifically earlier to give themselves that, that power added importance so that candidates do have to spend an exorbitant amount of time in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Look what Florida did, right? Florida jumped their primary earlier in the calendar against the DNC because they wanted to become more important. And the DNC actually uh, 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 docked them for it. Her, her uh, uh, took some of the. Uh, so how of their can Vermont part. do it and Florida can't and Washington can't? 
what jump ahead and say we're going to vote a little early. You can try the the DNC can can also. Why know, don't they mandate we all vote at the same again? Time? That's that's there is there is a, a school of thought out there that you ought to have you ought to basically break it up into thirds. Joel Underwood, um, what's up with the electoral college? Does I that mean, need to go away? Well, we can, that's a whole other. But <laughs> I mean, that's the, it. Does the way we lay it out, it. It basically gives those early states, which tend to be the smaller states, that's because that's why they want to be earlier. Because think about it. If, if Iowa wasn't so early, what presidential candidate would go to Iowa? There, there'd be no reason to, right? Because they're the, the, of just of population. So what it does for some of those smaller states is it makes politicians who might be the leader of the free world have to go there and listen to their issues. You have to go and sit and listen to a group of Iowa corn farmers talk about the difference between having to use your corn for food and feed corn versus using it for ethanol and getting subsidies. That is not an issue that a lot of presidential candidates are going to care about once they get into office. But if you want one of the two, there's no saying two tickets out of Iowa, you can come in first or second. If you're coming in third, that's a tough one uh, to keep going. That makes them have to sit and listen to those issues Mm -hmm. in the same way. If you are, if you're going to, to Maine, if you if you don't have to campaign in Maine, you never have to sit down with a bunch of Maine fishermen and listen to right. the differences between Canadian versus American fishing rights off those waters. Yeah, we're and over that's fishing right here too. And know? that right, and that's something that they believe every president should at least have to listen to somebody talk about. That's the whole point of the electoral college too. Yeah, when it comes to middle America, I'm really worried about agriculture and topsoil and the methane gas and the butchering of high volume animal farms. And, you know, I was talking to you earlier before we got on air here about, you know, I wrote down like 50 issues that came up during the debate and, you know, water and topsoil and stuff like that is not even mentioned. And there's just so many things that we need to fix. It's tough to, to say, Hey, Iowa's problems are are just as important as the the wildlife and the fisheries out here in Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have um, tipped the scale towards you know wildlife and and green living, and their immediate thing is is jobs, agriculture, corn, soybeans, stuff like that, and it's it's massive amounts of farms, and we have a dense city, so it's different mindsets completely so how do we wrap all these issues up together and get everybody moving towards a common goal whether it's republican or democrat well and what you see again with somebody like a jay Inslee saying listen we can talk about all these issues we can talk about the difference between iowans farming corn or them getting paid subsidies not to and washingtonians fishing in acid puget sound but what we're really all talking about is climate change you have to put it all under the umbrella of climate change or you've got a bernie saying all those things that you're talking about those things are income inequality things these farmers are doing this because they have to these fishermen don't have a choice because they can't get retrained so what you see these candidates doing is saying rightly or wrongly that all those sub issues you want to talk about are actually under this one big umbrella issue, which is my issue, be that uh, uh, income inequality or be it climate change, whatever it, it happens to be, because that's very frankly what what people can deal with. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's, it's going to be a long haul. All right, Joel, 
some other guys that look like they're heading out of here is is Delaney. Um, God, I don't want to comment on people's appearance, but he just looks like a mean, beady-eyed guy going at it. And it, it's tough to say, this is a guy that I want to be a leader. Well, and Bernie, and, and they very clearly set him up as the moderate on the first night versus the extremism of of Bernie and, and Warren. And Bernie... Absolutely desolate. He got he took two hard body shots. Uh, number one from from Elizabeth Warren, again, with that quote talking about I don't know, understand why some people run for president just mm-hmm. to tell us all the things they can't do. And then another one where he talked about where Delaney wanted to talk about him having corporate experience and having made money. And Bernie came back and just tagged him with, yeah, you were making money from the healthcare system. Right. That's why that's should you not run what it? we need? Why should you run it when you have basically come at it from a corporate taking out of? situation yeah i i gotta say i i have a hard time seeing him sticking around how how did you think o'rourke did again better because everybody did better uh he still has that that thing if 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 he were paying me to to do his his consulting he wants to emphasize everything and and one of the things i constantly tell my speakers and my my debaters was if everything is important nothing is important if, if, if you emphasize everything, we hear nothing. If you're constantly pointing and, and bobbing down at the microphone like a 16-year-old teenager who's just got this suit and, and is constantly trying to – the microphone's not tall enough and just doing all this stuff for emphasis, it's, it's not – then everything kind of fades into this one morass of quote-unquote important. And, and I know I, – I, I mean I know he's got the, the, the donor package from early on that he's going to be able to hang around for a while. I, I have a hard time seeing him go a long way away. Doesn't uh, he have a little bit of resting bitch face too? He – I think he's got one of those things where sometimes I'll have a speaker who, who for instance, they'll, they'll stop halfway through and they'll go, Joel, I don't know what to do with my hands. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a hard time with with what is one of the primary rules of, of public speaking, which is when there's nothing to do, don't do anything. Right. That's why Bob Dole was the the, the standard, you know, holding the pen in his hand. Well, there were a couple of different reasons. For yeah. That. Number one is he was a pointer and and his and his he had had some consultants tell him pointing is weak, which it is. Mm-hmm. And so you hold something. Uh, uh, the other thing is holding on to something and squeezing it is a really good nerves cure. If you if you're ever uh, uh, dealing with a situation where you've got nerves, if you just got some pen, uh, a pen, some keys, something in your hand that you can squeeze, it just reminds your body, hey, I can move. Blood can flow. Mm-hmm. Squeezing, and a lot of people can't tell you're doing it, which makes it a really nice sort of secret little way to to fight nerves sometimes. And didn't he have like a nerve issue? He had a nerve as part of a, I think think it, I want to say it was a, a war injury of some type that was. Yeah. Uh, he had some issues too with his shoulders where he couldn't go all the way up, and so yeah, he was uh, he he he. Had had some little tricks that some people had taught him. Marianne Williamson, 66, progressive, spiritual advisor to Oprah, motivational author, preached love, higher wisdom, awakening, heart and mind uplifting, small acts of kindness. Scares the crap out of me. Some serious issues here. And should scare the crap out of the DNC. Tom, Tom Perez should be sitting, lying awake at the ceiling at night, looking and going, oh my God, Marion Woods. I feel the same way about Bill de Blasio. Because here's, here's what can happen with those candidates, those type of candidates. She's not going to get the nomination. She's not going to be the person. But she is exactly the kind of person, and de Blasio is exactly the kind of person, who could put together some big fish donors... When they don't get the nomination, 
who could because they're running largely what Aristotle would call a pathos-based campaign on emotion and big language, things like that, get their feelings hurt and decide when it doesn't turn out to be them, I'm going to run third party. Mm-hmm. I'm going to run independent. And they peel off boats. Jill Stein, Ralph Nader, yeah. right? That, that they, they just feel to me de Blasio. Right? Bla- well, Ross Perot a little bit different because he's coming from the other side. But, but, but yeah, de Blasio and Williamson, I feel like have that written all over them and they scare the crap out of me. First of all, let's be clear about Williamson. Anybody who's an anti-vaxxer and anybody who has officiated a ceremony, anybody who has gone willingly into the doors of Neverland Ranch should never get within spitting distance of the White House, knowing what we know now. See, this is my argument with you earlier was Trump can have 10,000 problems. Marianne Williamson can have one of being an anti-vaxxer and that disqualifies her immediately. I know that's just horseshit to be an anti-vaxxer, but does that eliminate all the good that she brings with the love and the small acts of kindness? And no, no, Listen, some of the things she's saying are great things. Her, I That's thought her of, speech was really good at the end, especially about reparations. And absolutely. She's got something to say about reparations, which is great. I, I, I think there's there's some positive things that she has to say. But that doesn't change the fact that, again, both she and de Blasio, they look to me ripe. For that kind of person, that Jill Stein type of person, that Ralph Nader type of person, that when they don't get the nomination and they're not going to get it, could put together that toxic cocktail of heavy duty donors, getting my feelings hurt, enough sort of Cassius people around them going, it'll be you if you just if you just stay in a little bit long, give people a choice. It could be you. It could be you who could put together a third party nominee. And let's not kid ourselves. It's going to be a close election next November. It's going to be close. And in some states, it's going to be really, really close. And somebody coming in and peeling off some of those votes could be detrimental. It could be catastrophic. And, and I, I just I look at her and I look at de Blasio and I see that and I go, oh, no, no, okay. no, no. OK, 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 OK. I don't want to believe this or think this even because somebody that's super impressive to me. That has caught my eye is Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. She um, very strong. She's suing Google. Mm-hmm. Great concept right there. Um, she's got the military experience. She ripped Kamala Harris Went big after. time yeah. about her judicial um, history and marijuana as well. She at one point was anti-gay and is now saying that she's evolved and she no longer believes that she was very much in a a strict family of that she's hindu um she had she's active military she makes a lot of sense she's very level and measured but there's rumors that she may pull off as a third party on the basis that she's in it to help promote Trump. Do you buy into that at all based on her um, affiliation with foreign leaders? So, uh, no. And by the way, the the FBI just listed as, as one of the number one security threats to, to the United States, conspiracy theories. Mm. People believing wild things that, that actually have, have no 
basis in in reality. Look, Tulsi Gabbard again. It's not it's not going to be her, but. The difference between somebody, say, a Tulsi Gabbard versus a Marianne Williamson or a Bill de Blasio, I think, is first of all, somebody who's younger. So they've got a career ahead of them to think about. Right. She could go on. She could run again in four years or eight years. She could have a really great career in Congress. Mm -hmm. There's other things she has to think about. Also, I got to factor in the military stuff. When you've been in the military, you know what it means to be a good soldier. You know what it means to for there to be a hierarchy and for you to know, you know what, this is a point where I got to take one for the team. This is one where I've got my place and these people have their place. And and again, I, I, I look at her and I see somebody who is capable of going, if not me this time. I can think about next and next and next. Marianne Williamson, Bill de Blasio, you can't tell me they're looking eight years down the road, right. 15 years down there. No, 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 no. She That's, can also implement ideas into other people's heads. Ab- absolutely. And and I think that when, when, again, that recipe for a third party, for a third party candidacy tends to be when you, when you feel like this is it. This, this is my shot. My window is open right now. If I don't do it this time, whoever's going to run is going to get eight more is going to get, let's say, eight years. You know, we, we tend to do that. Um, and then I'm done. You know, that that third party candidacy, unless you're somebody like Ralph Nader, who just keeps running or just, just kept, bring that up. kept running. Um, you tend to feel like this is your shot. You know, mm-hmm. Ross Pro ran that time. That was right. I think Nader was more of a arc of let's continue to have this discussion which is great except he had people beg him beg him during the last run he had some of the 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 major liberals in this country down on their knees begging him please ralph don't run we've seen mathematically what you do Mm -hmm. you don't do a ton but you do just enough to to you know, make things incredibly worse than than they would be. But there is a certain amount of ego involved. Uh, yeah, it's it's significant. So let me ask you about Gabbard. You you said she's not going to be the one. She has the donors. She doesn't have the polling. She has one poll out of four. Not right now. But she was also, interestingly enough, we talked about Marion Williamson being the most Googled. The person who picked up the most Twitter followers, Andrew Yang, she was right behind him in second. And second night, she was most Googled. And I would argue that is in many ways more significant because when somebody's willing to follow you on Twitter, what they're saying is, I don't know. I don't just want to know what you're about. I am willing to associate myself with you, get a constant stream of your ideas, keep right. up with you, follow you. That's why I think that that Twitter thing is is a little bit more significant. And she was the second most she picked up the second most in, in terms of the debates. I, I don't So I don't, don't that give her the next poll? At least two percent? It it could. Um and then we have a year and a half basically to Look, get some more polls, right? And and, and we, if she gets on that that next debate stage, does she gather more momentum potentially? And you, and you look, something could always, you know, somebody could Gary Hart Joe Biden, or something. You can you can find out things that could happen to the leaders, and they could tumble away. Look, lots of things can happen. Uh, there there is a certain point of prognostication going on, but yeah, she also again, whatever happens with her, she's I, I don't think she's going to get the nomination, but. 
she's got a career ahead of her. Would she make a good vice president? Would she make a good vice president? Would she uh, uh, be make an interesting secretary of it defense? Depends. Yeah, that's Would what I'm you, saying. You know, there, there's all kinds of things. See, we, we are watching. We're not just watching who's going to be president here. We're watching Same people, people make careers. Yeah. You know, if you, for instance, if Bernie does win. Okay. And you can call this ageism. You can call it whatever you want. If Bernie does get the nomination, I'm going to look really hard at who he picks for vice president. Well, really you think he picks Warren immediately or vice versa? Ooh, no, he's got to go the other direction. I mean, Bernie and Warren is, is just kind of doubling down. He's got to he's got to pick youth. He's got to pick somebody who goes in in some ways in a policy. Direction. He might have to pick somebody who goes a little bit more center. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a Bernie Buttigieg yeah, situation. But but you got to look closely at that because the question everybody's going to have about him is going to be an age question. Yeah. Well, they have that same question about Biden with and Biden? Trump. Yeah, sure. And, Absolutely. And a little bit with Warren. Absolutely. What about um, Tulsi and Pete together? Uh, man, for some people, it is it is the, the new generation dream ticket. I It is certainly a very up. military ticket. Yeah. You know, those are the two, those are the two with, with military experience. Um, I, don't know. I don't know. That's 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 interesting. It feels to me, again, sort of like Bernie... San, uh, Bernie and Warren in the other direction. It's a doubling down. You Traditionally, what you tend to do with uh, a vice presidential pick is you tend to try to reach to the people you're not reaching. Well, who's Pence reaching? Pence is reaching those conservative Christians from the middle of America who look at Donald Trump in a way as a coastal elite. And, and he's looking at those uh, and he's trying to reach those faith-based folks. Uh, who who feel like the most important thing is pro-life and getting as many Supreme Court justices on the bench as you can. What happened to Gillibrand? I thought she had a, a decent first first night, and then this next time she, she seemed, struggled. Didn't her... She seemed kind of caught out a couple yeah. of times. Where like, and to be fair, the moderators did occasionally, and they didn't just do this with her, but they did it with a few people. Occasionally, through to you. Through through a question to you when two people were talking and it had nothing to do with you and you right. hadn't been mentioned and they so did it to Yang these too. two people are talking about gun control or whatever and suddenly they just go Senator Gillibrand your thoughts and she was just sort of that she had those moments of I uh what and then she collected it but there was a little bit of kind of okay and over here. It, it was it was a little tough. And on she her. struggled against Biden. I thought she struggled against Biden. He got a decent zinger on her. In you know, I, you came with me to Syracuse when we talked to female college students yeah, about yeah, pro-choice, yeah. pro-right. You love me. I don't know I what's don't happening. Understand. Only thing I can think of that's different is now you're running for president. Right. That, and that, that was, was as tough. That that was that was a tough one. She's another one that I I I just don't. And by the way, she's gone. Some of these senators. I, I don't want them to go much further. I need strong senators, people in the Senate. I need in so many times in American history when we've had weakness in the Oval Office, when we've had weakness in the executive branch, it has been countered by incredibly strong, great lions and lionesses of the Senate. Whether you want to talk about Daniel Webster, Inouye, Sam Irvin, Ted Kennedy – we we sit here and we talk all the time. And by the way, this was something that wasn't mentioned much in the debate. We talk all the time about Trump and the damage Trump is doing. Most powerful person in America is not Donald Trump. Most powerful person in America governmentally is Mitch McConnell right now. Yeah. He's the Moscow one who's, Mitch. Who's, who's deciding what does and doesn't get 
you Can't know, find my chin. One other thing about Elizabeth, I need Elizabeth Warren to stay. I, I want her to become my Mitch McConnell because we're going to need a Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. The liberal side is going to need a Mitch McConnell in a way that Harry Reid just wasn't it. And if it's her, that's great. But I need I need great lions of the Senate because what's getting proven, of course, every day right now is you can have and, and what I think got proven during the Obama administration, particularly the second half, is you can have, you know, this this person with all this vision in the executive branch. And if you don't have powerful legislators in the other branch to to pull that off, nothing happens. Shout out to Gillibrand with a great line. If I were to be president, the first thing I would do is Clorax the White House. <laughs> that was awesome. There you go. Who else we got here? Hey, we haven't really talked about um, the Kool-Aid man, Cory Booker. Um, I thought he did well, and he was um, the happy warrior for sure. He kind of threw punches at everybody. He stood his ground. He was much more... Um, I don't know, receptive is not the word, but uh, likable. Sure. He was up there uh, throwing jabs and smiling while he did it, which I thought was good. And he had a great line against Biden twice, besides the Kool-Aid line was like, I'm surprised you want to compare records. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm you. surprised you want to do that. Um, yeah, he is one of those candidates who finally you know we we had talked about him back at, at the beginning a candidate who there was this initial buzz for when he first announced oh cory booker's going to and then it kind of faded and it kind of took a dip and that's because these sorts of things debates are where he really you can tell he shines in that quick one-on-one exchange in that passionate uh um you know mr soundbite type of thing this is really if he can stay on the debate stage if mm-hmm. he can keep going third, fourth, fifth. Well, he's qualified he's for qualified September. He's qualified for the third. If he can keep going, this is he's the kind of, of candidate who can who can really build because he does very well in this format in a way that, very frankly, I, I don't think someone like uh, an Andrew Yang or a Michael Bennett really does because I think they are stronger. And to a certain degree, this is true of Biden, too. They are stronger when you get them in front of an audience and they have something to say and they get to say it uninterrupted right. for for a, a longer amount of time. Right. This is a good Booker time. I want to get back to Bennett and Yang about that that very point. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get off of Booker, there was a couple of times where I was just like, you know, he thinks on his feet. I like that. There was the the first moment that caught my eye was is just deer in headlights when Castro started speaking Spanish. And he was like, wow. And then Wait, he, we can he, do that. I didn't know that was in the rule. Then he busted out his own Spanish. Right. But the first, the shock and awe of hearing the Spanish language at the debate blew him away. It was obvious. And then he just joined in. So he was thinking on his feet. And then him just being up there kind of rotating his shoulders and smiling and just staying on point. You know, he became the likable candidate. He had that big toothy smile that was like, hey, it's fun. I, I feel comfortable up here. And and that's something that I picked up on on him. And I think, you know, he, he makes a lot of sense when he speaks as well. I think I think he gave a lot of people the impression that, listen, I'm going to come at whoever it is, Joe Biden, uh, whoever I'm, I'm talking to right now. I'm going to come at him hard. But after it's over, we're going to shake hands and be okay. And right. the main thing is going to be we we work towards beating Trump. 
right. November. He was he's he a was, team guy. He was able to be aggressive without it feeling like it was going to be personal and he was going to hold grudges or in, forced. Forced in a way that I, I think if you look on the other side of Biden, Harris doesn't seem to be able to do. There's there's a sense, and some people respond to this, by the way, that my animosity towards you is personal. It's real. It's deep-seated, and when this is over, we are not going to be okay again. We are not going to be all right because what I feel for you is so against you is so real and so deep. It's it's we're not we're not all just going to shake hands and be on the same team after this is over. They are taking two very different approaches to this. That's where I thought Gabbard really hurt Harris and put put the doubt in people's mind was she was talking about the the, the busing from right. forty years ago. Her record as prosecutor and all the busing. Then Gabbard yeah. turned around and said, well, what about yesterday mm-hmm. with you, <laughs> you know, yeah. currently now? Yeah. What are you doing? You know, you're keeping these people in prison as a uh, longer for uh, extended workforce. Um, you're not doing things by the book yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. So I like that about that. Um, Bennett. I'm sorry to disrespect you, sir, but you sound like Mr. Rogers if he was a Muppet. <laughs> that is an interesting characterization. He's just so monotone and quiet, and he's like your grandfather that's reluctantly giving you sound advice, but you kind of drown it out because it's just so monotone and, and quiet. And he, if you listen to the words that he has said, it, it makes a lot of sense. And he's a very intelligent guy, mm-hmm. but he's not somebody that's going to captivate his audience. No, 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 no. He's he's going to be one of those guys uh, who, who's probably going to get, I would say, offered a cabinet post or uh, uh, is, again, going to, to go on to be a, a very powerful lion of the Senate where we need him. He's but, a senator from Colorado. Colorado. But uh, again, he's I think you, you put your finger on it in, in a way, even when he gets passionate. It it sounds forced in a way that when someone like say a Cory Booker is talking quietly he has a force and a gravitas that sounds like it's just a matter of time before I rev it up again mm-hmm. right and and there's a thing i mean it's it's tough and i know i'm i'm using some technical speech terms here but there is such a thing as kind of an it there's an it factor right. that you can just look at some people and go, you've got it and you, I can't tell you why, but you just don't. And it's not just physical attractiveness and it's right. not just uh, erudite speaking. I mean, o- Obama had it. People, people don't like to admit it on, on, you know, my political spectrum, but Sarah Palin had it. it. Yeah, Ronald sure. Reagan, it, you know, Pete Buttigieg has it. Andrew Yang flirts with it sometimes, but you've got somebody like a Michael Bennett who just doesn't. And it doesn't mean your ideas aren't good. And it doesn't mean there's not an important place for you in federal government at the highest levels. It just doesn't mean you're, you're maybe not yeah, I mean, it. Think of Mr. Rogers as giving your halftime speech for your football team. You know, you're going to go knock somebody's head off after you heard that. No, it's I not mean, gonna you, you might spend 10 seconds and think about the people who brought you here. Now, I, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I love me some Mr. Rogers. OK, yes. if you dog on Mr. Rogers, we're going to have a problem in the parking lot well, after y- the show. You know, I'm the Mr. Rogers of podcast. Oh, there you go. See, I know I, I, I'm a big Mr. Rogers fan. Um, but 
Yeah, it's it's not necessarily different different things for different things. Uh, speaking of conspiracy theories, for all you Mister Rogers conspirators, um, he did not wear his cardigan to cover up his arm sleeve tattoos. <laughs> oh God! And I know that's out there on the internet. Let me just debunk it right here on the Bystander <laughs> Podcast. Hey, um, Yang Gang, uh, love Andrew. Been pressed for him, seen him speak quite a few times. Um, podcasts are definitely his comfort zone. Um, big, large venues speaking. He came out before the debate and was like, this is just stupid reality TV. And then he used a line that this reality TV is why we have a reality TV star. And he talked about what most people cared about last debate was I was not wearing a tie. Yeah, yeah, and it's it was, like, it nice. you know, shut up with all that nonsense, you know, and he was measured. I think he knew that he was going to get to another debate, mm-hmm. not do too much harm to himself or get involved, nor did he have the opportunity to really get involved in a lot of these discussions. Sure. That was two debates in a row where he had minimal talking time compared to the rest of the But again, because nobody's calling his name, right? right. The other candidates aren't going, like Andrew Yang says, and then Andrew Yang gets to talk. That's what they're doing with Biden. That's what they're doing with Warren and Sanders. And so when when people don't attack you, you don't get to talk as much. Yeah. Uh, Klobuchar. Is that how I say mm-hmm. her name? She's the same way. She doesn't get her name mentioned too often. So she just sits back and then she's kind of a silent killer. You have to depend upon the moderators then. Yeah. yeah and she's one that continues to pass bills and be successful in Minnesota and is a great politician for sure. But she's not getting those opportunities. So I thought Yang was good about his message. You know, I'm the opposite of Trump. I'm an Asian that likes math. And when he had an opportunity to swing whatever topic was back into his message, he did so very well. He did like bump the mic and there was some feedback. So it was a great soundbite for everybody. But it seemed like Detroit loved him. Well, and keep in mind, where is his message going to resonate more? Automation. I mean, a place where they have been decimated. By exactly what he's talking about. He had that one great line. If if you go into those factories where people in Detroit have lost all their jobs, you're not going to see wall-to-wall immigrants. Right. You're going to see wall-to-wall robots. Um, here's an interesting thing. I, I use, My wife is a great barometer. It would be hard to be a bigger Elizabeth Warren fan than my wife. My wife is right. so in the tank for Elizabeth Warren. Over the last few days, she is starting to go... You know that Yang guy that you watch those videos and seeing him on the debates, and t- he's he's saying some interesting things. He is telling some truth that other people aren't telling. I mean, that's what can potentially happen. I mean, my, she's he's not going to pull my wife away from Elizabeth Warren. Right. He's not going to. But is he going to make some people go, huh? You know what that guy's talking about about automation, and Amazon paying zero taxes? That's not wrong, right? He he has a. Another platform that he hasn't even got to about banking going into the postal system, which I'm really on board for because the postal system hemorrhages about a million dollars a day in losses and and the big box like Amazon and UPS and stuff like that have just kind of decimated the postal system along with um, my favorite bicyclist, Lance Armstrong. Mm. Um, the postal uh, – what do you call it? The post office is, is – a dying thing kind of like sears and radio shack so how do we rejuvenate it because it's something we definitely will need um casual banking you know your atm and your teller can we attach that to the postal system and i'd like to hear that articulated a little bit more 
and and what he's moved on to a little bit is very interesting. And so so he's just not talking about the thousand bucks a month for everybody. One of the things that I find fascinating is him talking about changing the metrics by which we measure how we're doing. Yeah. The GPD, idea that G- yeah. GDP is useless and it's a terrible measure and we should be doing it on things like life expectancy. And get, I mean, that that's an interesting message, too, that he's starting to get out there, that he's starting to to pivot to a little bit more, which which I think is fascinating. Well, I love it when he talks about his wife. She's a stay at home mm-hmm. mom and his son, I believe it's his son, is on the autistic spectrum and she has no value in the GDP. Right. You can't tell me her taking care of my two children and getting them to school and feeding them and clothing them and always being there for them has no value. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got to start thinking about it like that. Would you say your wife has no value? You know, no. Right. And uh, It's powerful stuff. When I go to these guys' websites, there's usually a, a bracket that says issues. Mm-hmm. And some of them, like Bernie... You'll have to scroll eight pages. Yeah, absolutely. You'll see all the things because they're individually listed. But some will put like three things there and say infrastructure. And then infrastructure will have a plethora of, of subcategories underneath that mm-hmm. that's into it. And I would behoove people to go to Yang's and start um, researching that stuff because it's not just a $1,000 grab bag for everybody. That is a highlight um, speaking Mm-hmm. moment a tagline basically but he has he has some great ideas for but sure. the others but much like bernie a lot of the other stuff does come back to that because his idea is if you free people up if you give them a chance to get the boot off their neck these other things can happen right. i can get better medical care i can move and start a business easier uh, in the same way that bernie says listen as long as you've got corporations uh and and the primary motive for these these institutions like healthcare and such is profit nothing's going to change it it does they they do have some of these big and and the other thing that you got to be careful of that's that's dangerous is coming up with some of these plans is hard like if if you decide you wanted to run for president tomorrow coming up with a healthcare plan is hard and it's complex and it's difficult and what a lot of these campaigns tend to do is they go over and they pick one that they like of a candidate that's already out there like a lot of people have taken bernies and they've gone I'll just make a change here. Let's see. Let's change right, that right, percentage. Right. A lot of people basically who are running for president co-opted Bernie's health care plan from last time and said this is the, and this with a few changes is now my health care plan, which I mean, again, that's cost. That's that's efficient. It's cost effective. When you get quizzed on it, there might be stuff in there in your own plan that you don't know. I wrote but, the damn bill. Right. A lot of people have co-opted stuff from other people. Now, which, to be fair, somebody like Elizabeth Warren has not done. She is the author of her stuff. Smart lady. Mm-hmm. So Medicare for All, uh, Affordable Care Act, those seem to be the two dividing health care plans within the Democratic Party. Well, I would also argue there is somebody like, say, a, a, a more centrist, uh, like a Bullock or something, who's also kind of more status quo. Right. I mean, we leave things for all intents and purposes kind of the way they are. Maybe strengthen the Affordable Care Act a little bit, but we're not going to throw any bombs in the system now. So there's – yeah, there's a there's it, a spectrum. There's a huge shift for, since Obamacare came in. Like let's just get a health care plan in and now yeah. it's like can we can we make it private-public? Oh, yeah. Can And everybody's kind of tweaking it. And it's before like do people not realize what it was like 10 years ago even getting a health care – up and running. Give me a break. Our our <laughs> our our historical memory is last week's Time magazine. 
as a culture, we have no a decade a decade. Are you kidding? Yeah. People can't remember what was in their CNN feed last week. Well, it, I couldn't it, remember stunning. when you were talking about Cory Booker. Like what led up to that? I was like trying to think to myself, like, what, what was he talking about at that moment? And that was, you know, three or four days we have ago. No history. This is why it makes me crazy when people go into, oh, Trump's the worst president we've ever had. Oh, we've never been more divided than we've ever been. We had a civil, civil war, war where people. we shot three quarters of a million of each other. Oh, no. Mike Pence is the worst vice president we've ever had. We've had two vice presidents, count them two, who shot people while in office and got away with it. You know, Trump is the <laughs> worst president we've ever had in our lives. I can name five off the top of my head that probably beat him or at least in the run. I mean, it's it's that same hubris and lack of historical perspective and memory that certain evangelical Christians are, are sure that now they must be living to, right now must be the end times. And what it really is, is it's, it's a hubris that the things that are happening while I'm here are the most important things. Mm. Right. It's yes. because we are young. We are a young country. We don't have as much now. history as other people. I, look, I, I've taught teenagers for for a quarter of a century. The defining characteristic of a teenager is what is happening to me now is the worst thing that's ever happened. What is going on now is the way it's always going to be. The fact that I can't get my locker open in between classes is worth (laughs) tears because it's the worst thing that's ever happened. We're the same way as a nation. If something bad is happening now, it's the worst thing that's ever happened. If Trump is a bad president, he's the worst president that's ever been. If we're divided now, we've never been more divided. It's like, no, you got to have some historical perspective because hysteria helps no one. Hysteria helps no one. Look, Trump might not be your cup of tea, but it makes me crazy when I hear some liberals go, oh, I would love to have George W. Bush back so much. Oh, at least he was a a survivable politician. Let me see. Trump might not be your cup of tea, but at last count, he has not lied us into a Middle Eastern revenge war based on his family that at last count has killed about a million people on both sides combined. Okay, uh, Buchanan, who saw the Civil War coming and did nothing. Grant, whose White House was a cesspool of corruption. Andrew Johnson, who was impeached. Nixon, Watergate. And yet somehow all these go away because I'm alive and politically cognizant during the Trump years. So Trump is the worst person ever. That hysteria, that lack of historical memory helps nothing. Mm-hmm. It is so unuseful. Sorry, personal soapbox. I love it. I want to get to each candidate before we get into uh, Republicans and issues and sign out here. Um, going forward, um, what does Hickenlooper have to do to continue on? Uh, buy some nice property in the Colorado mountains and begin raising goats. I, it's it's not going to be him. I'm sorry. It's it's just not. Um to, to continue on, he's he's going to have to expand his his appeal to the coasts, and and that's going to be really hard for somebody like him. Okay, we got um, Steyer coming in next debate. Um, looks like we have eight qualified already. We have Yang, Castro, Steyer, Gabbard, Hickenlooper um, polling. Not quite there yet, so that means. Marianne Williamson looks done. Tim Ryan looks done. Um, Delaney looks done, which is kind of surprising because I thought he got a lot of airtime and he had some money behind him and he was very vocal, but definitely not very well liked. Um, De Blasio looks gone. Bennett looks gone. Gildebrand looks gone. Uh, 
Um, is Castro going to hang on? He could potentially. Um, again, because he is uh, have has become has made himself very effectively the face of what I think is the big uh, news issue of, of this summer, which is immigration reform, which is the fact that. Uh, uh, yes, what we're doing at the border is horrible, but by the same token, the immigration system does need a massive reform. And well, and well so he's, he's also that, been a proponent of we have a good system; it needs to be upgraded. We have plenty of walls, we have plenty of spending on it, we have plenty of military there, we have the planes, the drones. We need to solve problems why these people are fleeing their countries and get those foreign policies together with. Which Guatemala I, I love. There were there were a couple of candidates this last time saying we need a Marshall Plan for Central and South America, mm-hmm. and to make to make it so people and that's that's terrific. I you know there's there it's it's not a, a coincidence that when we slice the heck out of foreign aid, which is an easy it's it's an it's an easy pinata to hit, if you will, when when budget bills come up. Why are we giving so much money to these other countries when we have these huge problems at home? Oh, slash foreign aid, slice foreign aid, slash, slash foreign aid. Military. Well, this is what happens. Yeah. This is what happens. When you you can it's it's like the old Meineke muffler commercial. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. You can help and make these countries a little bit more secure and a little bit more livable, or you can deal with these people when they storm your borders. Sorry, that's the way it is. You know, there was a, a a great quote during the the Syrian uh, refugee crisis when when the, they were coming across the Mediterranean in in the boats and in the rafts. When you're a parent, the only reason you put your child in a boat on the water is if you feel like it is safer on the water than it is on the land, and that's that's something that that we it's lose horrible. sight of. Yeah. All right. Some of these issues, and you can jump jump in after I I read them. I'm going to l- read a little list of what I heard. Um, healthcare for sure. That the by far the biggest. Medicare for all and um, Affordable Care Act and public and private options are are very much heated. Maybe would you say that's the number one issue? If you look at time, especially on the first night, and you look at the word cloud, nothing even comes close. That was first, and second was way far behind. Gun reform. I thought these are, you know, you were talking about all or nothing a little bit earlier. I think small things like flagging people that shouldn't have it, having the you know extended period of time before you can get a gun, it's not as easy, and minimizing the magazine count and how many semi-automatic um, weapons, you know, that's not not undoable or not. What do you call it? Um, it's not a hard ask. You know, it's it's something that we could we could change quite easily if it wasn't just a the Constitution, the NRA, you know, Republican, Democrat is such a huge fight where I think there's somewhere in the middle that we could compromise and, and people would be okay. There's just so many massive shootings that it just be, becomes commonplace. I mean, my son was in three lockdowns here on the island, which is ridiculous. You know, so they're growing up in this type of culture where gun violence is prevalent, you know, multiple times in a day even. Um Lead in the water is still a problem in Flint, and it seems like it's a problem, you know, in all kinds of states New York. Going, going in the future. Yeah, especially in New York. Uh, marijuana is a federal um, crime, taking that off and um, decriminalizing some of that um, climate, jobs, college debt. There was a lot of talk early on about 
um, excusing college debt or making college free or making two-year college um, free. Um, Pre-K being, you know, lessening the burden of daycare for people that are working and, and get a jump start on educating our youth. Affordable housing is, is something that's got to come down the pipe as an issue. Uh, clean energy and getting away from fossil fuels, huge. Uh, the drug prices this is something Bernie just I listed a bunch of trends like Pete was always talking about his youth. I thought that was a conscious move. And Bernie kept mentioning Canada. Yeah, I just went across the border to my friends. And he did a publicity stunt. He took he took some people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the middle class, which, you know, I, I feel like I've grown up thinking there was no middle class. It was the haves and have nots in a lot of ways. Um, that seems to be a hot topic. Decriminalizing and making a civil offense to cross the border and the border control and a pathway to citizenship is something. Um, why people are fleeing 2,000 miles to come to the United States in the first place. There's a lot of mixed thought on the Afghanistan exit. You know, what's going to happen if we completely leave out? And I thought Cory Booker had a good point about, um, you know, I'm not going to put a timetable on it. You know, it's something that you can't measure. I'm transitioning these jobs that are going to be obsolete in automation and self-driving cars. The opiate epidemic, foreign policy, which is all, always an issue. The LGBTQT, they don't add the A and the I to it, but the equity and equality for all and how we treat people. Racial justice, empowering indigenous people, Wall Street reform, taking the money out of politics, which the setup is just not there for it at all. And I don't know what that looks like in the future. Fair banking, revitalization of rural America and agriculture, election security, for sure, with uh, Russia, um, taking care of our veterans. You know, it was horrible about the 9-11 firefighters and how we've treated the veterans of war, you know, but we're constantly sending people to war. Electoral, electoral college, do we get rid of it? Um, the family separation at the border, universal base income, um, de-escalating police brutality and training police for that. I mean, there's a lot of places, Baltimore, Brownsville, even here in Seattle, which we've had to reform police. And we have to think of a different way. I mean, even Bainbridge Island is like trying to incentivize just becoming a regular police officer here. Um, we have to prepare for the automatic automated cars. I mean, you, if you drive on I-5 around here now with people in cars, there's constant construction, the viaduct, the tunnel, I-5, it's six lanes wide and it's at capacity and we're going less than 30 miles an hour. Hey, just get out of your cars, people. Um, cryptocurrency and how do we protect that transition in banking, um, infrastructure everywhere, economic opportunities for everyone. We have to, you know, close that gap between the haves and have-nots. Um, the way we teach teacher, teachers and, and their pay and kind of elevate their importance in society. Uh, reparations, Marianne Williamson brought that up, and I thought she sp spoke the most eloquently about that and the only one to speak about that. Um, the tariffs, which we're going through just a cluster of that right now. Um, healthcare. I thought Gabbard had a great point in saying, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. 
man, did that radiate with me. And then that was another point for Gabbard. Um, I didn't know her from Eve. And I, I keep feeling like she's giving momentum to me with what she's saying. You know, it's very direct and to the point. And I think, you know, as our favorite caller, O.J. Simpson, which I'll play for you later at the end, <laughs> called in and said, you know, are these two, Yang and um, Gabbard, the only ones playing by the rules? Because they set back, speak articulate, and just spoke speak when they're spoken to. And then, of course, you know, the issues of Marianne Williamson and acts of kindness. If I could summarize this, I would, but I can't. That's why I have political expert for the Bystander Podcast, Joel Underwood, in the house. Um, what do you see as maybe the top five issues that separate Democrats from Republicans and could swing the party to a Democratic president? I'll give you the top one. I don't even need the top five. Out of the list you just read, it's it's the money in politics. It is because all of those other things you read – they would require legislative action, you know, that act of Congress or in some cases like uh, uh, Citizens United or, or uh, the gun stuff, uh, constitutional amendment. All right. All those. Nothing is going to happen as long as your Congress is motivated and policed not by its citizenry or not by its electorate, but by money. As long as money equals speech. In an and and by the way, in a, in an un uh, uh, unregulated way, uh, Citizens United said money equals speech. Okay, that's fine. I'll go with you to a point. But we regulate free speech all the time. Free speech doesn't mean unlimited speech. You can't say fire in a crowded theater. You can't slander. You can't lie. You can't uh, 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 you can't um, uh, uh, stimulate riot. You can't you can't hurt. We regulate speech all the time. So the idea that that money equals speech, but money therefore equals unlimited money must equal unlimited speech. That's the problem. That whole list you read, unless you change who is making the rules and who is sitting at the table when you make the rules, nothing is going to happen. The, 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 we're not we're not not changing and, and our American society isn't not progressing because of Donald Trump. It's not progressing because of Mitch McConnell. It's it's we our governmental system is set up so that if we have an ineffective executive, we can still function. How, how if we can, have an ineffective legislature, we cannot function. How can these bills just sit on McConnell's desk and he, he just doesn't finish it? That's the rules. That's that's how it works is you can table a bill. You cannot bring it up for a vote when you get to set the docket. Look, one of the one of the events that I coached for years and years called Student Congress. The first thing that happens in Student Congress is all the kids get together at the front of the room. They've all been prepped on their various bills and pieces of legislation that they've written. And then they set the docket. They decide which one's going to be first, which one's going to be second and so on. You know that the session's only going to be about two hours. We're not going to get to all these. So just the idea of decide, forget how we vote on it. The idea of picking what is going to be first, second, third that we even get to talk about is tremendously powerful. Again, that's why I, I want, you know, I, I want my Mitch McConnell. I want, I don't, I, it might be Elizabeth Warren, somebody. I need somebody in that seat who is setting a legislative agenda that's going to move the country forward. And, but that's the thing is, is the president, the presidential office, because it's only one person is sexy. We can, we can all think about it. We can all think about who we'd like to be president, who we wouldn't like to be president. We're picking between one person and another person. 
Go down and and ask people, stop people on the streets outside Pike Place Market and ask them who their local congressperson is. Ask them to name any two city council people. Ask them who their mayor is. Okay, we we are so politically motivated in the big sexy races that get all the the airtime. But legislative politics and especially local legislative politics has so much more to do with your life. But that's harder. See, this is where this is why a show like yours, if I could polish your apple for just a second, is so important because we have lost or are in the process of losing local journalism in this country. I'll give you a stat. So, so once upon a time, we all had our local newspapers, right? Seattle PI. We, we had our, peace. you know, we, we had, but even, I won't even say Seattle, like little cities, little towns had their little local newspapers. And what did people do? They read them and they decided how they felt on different individual, that's the key, individual issues. I think conservatively on this one. Oh, on this one, I think this guy's right. Oh, I feel a little bit more like this. Over the last 10 years, we have lost 1,200 in America, middle to small town newspapers, 1,200. Now, that doesn't impact somebody in, say, New York or Chicago where they have the Tribune or even in Seattle where they still have the Seattle Times. But in somewhere like, say, Shelton, where, where I'm setting myself up or, or somewhere uh, like Bend, Oregon or something like that, that kills those areas. And here's the thing. When you don't have local journalism what are you left at the mercy of? Talk radio, cable news, okay? When in communities, the stats are clear. In communities where they don't have their own local journalism, we're more polarized. We vote more party line. You're more likely to vote straight party ticket. And so the loss of local journalism is killing us. And one of the reasons, by the way, we lost local journalism is because the internet came up. You guys can't tell this is bad radio. I'm pointing to the screen right now. But the internet came up and what used to make local journalism work is classified advertising. Right? In in the New York Times, the Yankees or Macy's or whatever can take out a full page ad for Christmas. It's all, it's all awesome and keep them going. In in little newspapers, it's classified advertising. Well, what happened? Craigslist. All these different ways where you can do classified advertising for free. So these small little papers folded. So what are people left at the mercy of? Talk radio, cable news. Everybody asks, why are we so polarized? We're polarized because we've lost our local journalism, which allowed us to decide issue by issue and keep ourselves informed. That's why shows like yours are, are really important. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I believe in citizen journalism, although I don't call myself a journalist by any means. I I feel like I'm just presenting a conversation that people may not be privy to. And there's things like gerrymandering and filibustering, words like that that I'm not familiar with that I'd love to have somebody like you come explain. Um, and yes, I could use some sponsorship to help keep this type of stuff going on. So hit me up. But it's funny that you say that because last podcast I did with Seattle Town Hall um, – here on the Bystander Podcast was called The Media is Dying. And mm. the panel of journalists who had been from previous small, um, not rags, but um, newspapers, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. disregard our local, <laughs> um, they talked about that and how difficult it is to have an unbiased journalist write a piece because the media is owned by certain people like Murdoch and, and the message just goes universally through all these news outlets. And then we have this clickbait and then we have this 
hey, we have to get the information out as quickly as possible. You know, the debate's been a few days, but I like wanted to wait a few days, not only because I was out of town in New York, but to let it digest with me, let it digest with people. People could get that first clickbait from all the news sources, and then we could have an honest conversation about it down the road in retrospect. And I, th- I think it's important. The media is dying, and we definitely need to support local newspapers and local podcasts and get involved in the community. You were talking about going down, down to Pike Place, and I, I think I might do that. I often talk to people, and I was like, you know, you should check out a podcast. And people are like, what's a podcast? I'm like, hey, you should listen to the mayor on my podcast. You know, he's a very interesting guy. Oh, Bainbridge Island has a mayor? You know, See, and yeah. uh, hey, I just interviewed so-and-so on city council. Oh, we have a council? I never heard of that guy. You know, or we talk <laughs> about the aquifers here or the anti-growth measures and or how we're going to widen this or cutting down a tree here or development there or ethics, you know, a lot of people are just head in the head in the sand. And I think I asked you this question earlier, but I don't think I got an answer to it. I don't know if we were on the air or not, but why are people reluctant to talk politics or to get involved in listening to city council or, being up to date with what's going on in their community. Is it just a fear factor or a convenience factor? Or is it like, I just don't want to be bothered by that. And isn't that type of thought process detrimental to the growth of everybody? So, all right, I'll give you the Andrew Yang answer to bring it back around. I'm busy. Like I, I have to, this is why he wants, I think, to give people a thousand dollars. I have to work. Like there are people out there who've got, three and four jobs going on to try yeah. to, to, to make ends meet. There are people who are trying to figure out not just how to put their kid through college, but how to f- put food on the table. Uh, uh, staying informed takes work. Again, to bring it back around to the newspapers, that's why it's so difficult when your town loses its local journalism because it, it, takes, it, it takes work. You have to make a conscious effort to keep yourself informed, especially about local politics. Um, it's interesting. My father-in-law, uh, Amy's dad, was a, a news director before he he retired at uh, uh, several uh, local TV stations, and he hasn't. He, he and I sit around and talk about this sort of thing a lot when I go out to Long Beach. Um, he says it all changed once upon a time. The news was assumed by the local station or the local network to be what's called a loss leader. In other words, the news wasn't supposed to make money. The soap operas made money. The sports on Sundays made money. You know, Johnny Carson made money. Whatever. The news was supposed to lose you money. It was never supposed to be a money-making entity. Well, when you're, it doesn't matter whether you make money or not. You approach the news in a different way. To spin it back around to the debates here on CNN, when the news has to make money, when you have to sell advertising time, it's not a loss leader anymore. You have to think in terms of ratings and profit in the news. You're going to do the news differently. You're going to lead with different stories. You're going to show more visceral, bloody footage. You're going to spend less time making the complicated simple as opposed to to making the simple stuff 
seem important. You know, you're going to you're going to approach debates where you say, "Okay, let's split screen these guys and see if we can get them yelling at each other." Let, let's because again, you're trying to get you're ratings. instigating stuff. You're trying to get ratings. You're trying to make it watchable. And once the idea is that the news has to make money, has to get ratings, it drives the narrative. Everything changes. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well. <laughs> Joel, I appreciate you coming in. Oh, man, always fun. Um, I want to thank Great Northern Electric for sponsoring this podcast, uh, Eagle Harbor Insurance, and Blue Canary Auto. Um, Joel, I hope you will come out um, s- September. September. Let's let's do it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to play out a f- few sound bites, starting with this hilarious little Twitter feed from O.J. Simpson that I, I just got to play for you guys. Um, tell people about... What's going on in Olympia and your new endeavor? And um, oh, yeah, what's cracking with you outside of politics? So after uh, a- after coaching debate and teaching for for twenty five years and and consulting for uh, speeches and and debates things like that, I have decided, along with my wife, who is a terrific chef to go down to Shelton and we're opening a little place hopefully over Labor Day weekend called the Bard's Bounty which is going to be a combination cafe and live acoustic music room bluegrass all all sorts of uh, singer-songwriter stuff and also uh, gaming if you're a D&D or a Magic the Gathering person we got tables down there but it's it's going to be kind of a fun is, isn't it interesting you don't you don't retire anymore you have a retirement job so this is this is uh, going to be something we've talked about doing for a long time and it's going to be down Shelton you can find it at bardsbounty.com or follow us on the old Twitter or uh, the Instagram as the kids call it yeah you can check out the bystander on Instagram Facebook we'll be adding a swag um, portion where you can buy paraphernalia of the bystander podcast and help support the podcast by coffee cup wearing t-shirt stuff like that I know it's a little overpriced but we got to pay some bills Um, Joel Underwood you are one of the most eclectic friends I have from acting to debate to singing to now restaurateur, father extraordinaire. Um, my son keeps talking about a walk in the woods, which is his first play that he's seen. No kidding. That was the first one. Yeah. And, uh, he learned about using the restroom at intermission because we could not leave in the second act. Mm -hmm. And that's one of his favorite stories to tell. Shout out to Indie theater company and the gangs there. Yeah. All right, Joel Underwood, I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. I look forward to seeing you in September. You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. Be kind. Is it my imagination that Yang and Gabbard are the only two who know how to follow the rules of this debate? I'm just saying. If you heard anything about me and my campaign, you've heard that someone is running for president who wants to give every American $1,000 a month. I know this may sound like a gimmick, but this is a deeply American idea from Thomas Paine to Martin Luther King to today. Let me tell you why we need to do it and how we pay for it. Why do we need to do it? We already automated away millions of manufacturing jobs, and chances are your job could be next. If you don't believe me, just ask an auto worker here in Detroit. How do we pay for it? Raise your hand in the crowd if you've seen stores closing where you live. It is not just you. Amazon is closing 30% of America's stores and malls and paying zero in taxes while doing it. We need to do the opposite of much of what we're doing right now, and the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. So let me share the math. $1,000 a month 
for every adult would be $461 million every month right here in Detroit alone. The automation of our jobs is a central challenge facing us today. It is why Donald Trump is our president, and any politician not addressing it is failing the American people. Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a, quote, false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. As the elected attorney general of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about re-entering former offenders and getting them counseling. It is why and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to not Your only decriminalize but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to I want to bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in. Your response. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. It's no secret that I inherited a criminal uh, a police department with massive problems and decades-long challenges. But the head of the ACLU has already said, the head of the New Jersey ACLU, that I put forth national standard setting accountability. Mr. Time, Vice President, Mr. Vice President, I didn't interrupt you. Sorry, Please show me that respect, sir. We have a system right now that's broken. And if you want to compare records, and frankly, I'm shocked that you do, uh, I am happy to do that. Because all of the problems that he is talking about that he created, I actually led the bill that got passed into law that reverses the damage that your bills, that you were, frankly, to correct you, Mr. Vice President, you were bragging, calling it the Biden crime bill up to 2015. Thank you, Senator. Vice President Biden. Number one, the bill he talks about is a bill that in my, our administration, we passed. We passed that bill that you added on to. That's the bill, in fact, you passed. And the fact of the matter is, secondly, there was nothing done for the entire eight years he was mayor. There was nothing done to deal with the police department that was corrupt. Why did you announce in the first day a zero 
tolerance policy of stop and frisk and hire Rudy Giuliani's guy in 2007 when I was trying to get rid of the crack cocaine. Um, Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, you, need to, you need to come to the city of Newark and see the reforms that we put in place. The New Jersey head of the ACLU has said that I embrace reforms, not just in action, but in deed. Sir, you are trying to shift the you from what you created. There are people right now in prison for life for drug offenses because you stood up and used that tough on crime, phony rhetoric that got a lot of people elected, but destroyed communities like mine. This isn't about the past, sir. This is about the present right now. I believe in Thank redemption. You, I'm happy you evolved. I want to bring in but Secretary. you no redemption to the people in I want to, prison right now. I want to bring Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. We, we have an administration that has gutted the Clean Water Act. We have communities, particularly communities of color and disadvantaged communities all over this country who are suffering from environmental injustice. I, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to say it like it is. It's bigger than Flint. It's all over this country. It's particularly people of color. It's particularly people who do not have the money to fight back. And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? And if those people don't feel it, they won't vote for us, and Donald Trump will win. Many of your opponents support a commission to study the issue of reparations for slavery. But you are calling for up to $500 billion in financial assistance. What makes you qualified to determine how much is owed in reparations? Well, first of all, it's not $500 billion in financial assistance. It's $500 billion, 200 to $500 billion payment of a debt that is owed. That is what reparations is. I'll tell you what makes me qualified. If you did the math of the 40 acres and a mule, given that there was four to five million slaves at the end of, of, of the Civil War, there were four to five, and they were all promised 40 acres and a mule for every family of four. If you did the math today, it would be trillions of dollars. And I believe that anything less than $100 billion is is an insult, and I believe that 200 to 500 billion is, is politically feasible today because so many Americans realize there is an injustice that continues to form a toxicity underneath the surface, an emotional turbulence Ms. that Williamson, only reparations. Thank will you very much. If you were watching this at home and you are a Republican member of Congress, consider the fact that when the sun sets on your career and they are writing your story of all the good and bad things you did in your life. The thing you will be remembered for is whether in this moment with this president, you found the courage to stand up to him or you continue to put party over country. We can have great presidents at any age. What I will say is we need the kind of vision that's going to win. We cannot have a vision that amounts to back to normal. The only reason we got this president is that normal didn't work. We have to be ready to take on this president. And by the way, something hasn't been talked about as much tonight, take on his enablers in Congress. You know, when, when David Duke, when David Duke ran for Congress, whoever ran for governor, the Republican Party 20 years ago ran away from him. Today, they are supporting naked racism in the White House, or at best silent about it. And if you were watching this at home, and you are a Republican member of Congress, consider the fact that when the sun sets on your career, and they are writing your story of all the good and bad things you did in your life, the thing you will be remembered for is whether in this moment with this president, you found the courage to stand up to him or you continue to put party over country.